Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Van Artrek. I'm excited to be hosting our guest today, James Felton Keith. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, this is going to be cool. This might be eye-opening to a lot of our listeners say, around Agency Nation, and uh, as it was for me, but it's, it's a really cool topic, or I should say topics, James. Originally from Detroit, and you're living in Harlem, uh, in the big city up there in New York. You're also, you've done some stuff around politics, running for the U.S. House of Representatives. I have that right, right? Yeah, I ran for the House in uh, New York's 13th, and we're still here hanging out with the folks in the community, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. it made a pivot back to private sector and we're getting work done that way. So, you know. It's very cool what you have going on. And I, we really need to dive into this because there's a lot of history of things you've done in the insurance industry, things you're doing around diversity. And I think this is a very cool topic. So for those who can safely surf, James has a website called inclusioncorp.com. If you want to check out some of what's happening there as we're chatting. So James, let's, I'm not really sure where to begin because there's so much, I've done some reading on your stuff and I, I've done some listening of other recordings that have been made around this, this whole thing around diversity, around ISO. And the ISO that we're talking about here is not the ISO policies like the CGL policy. We're talking about a different ISO, right? Correct. Uh, you're right. I'm aware there's some ISO use of language in, in the industry, in the insurance industry. But when we say ISO, I guess for the sake of this show, I guess we're talking about the International Organization for Standards or the International Standards Organization. And for anyone out there who's not wholly familiar, really after World War II, you know, the allied countries, mainly us and the Brits, came together and we really started to standardize anything that we do well as humans. And so there's an ISO, we say ISO for short, standard for everything from the water that you're drinking to the textiles in your shirts to cybersecurity policy to now what was we've really got done on the heels of a 10-year effort as we've established an ISO or standard for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Uh, we just say DNI for short. Some people say DEI. Some people say DEI. But, right. but ISO-30415 is the global consensus across 163 countries for diversity and inclusion. And what it means is that we've streamlined the language that we would use to talk about DNI. Yeah, I think normally if you ask the two of us here, you know, what does DNI mean? We give you two completely different answers, and they probably be specific to human resources. But in this case, human resources is just one facet of the different domains of the ISO standard. And they really fit in a four big bucket, which are corporate governance, things you do with executives, corporate HR, obviously things you do with your employees but also corporate, you know, product delivery, things you do with your products, whether they're services or something more tangible. And last but not least, corporate procurement or how you engage supplier diversity and external stakeholders. So the ISO standard is really looking at internal corporate policy uh, specific to the function of your organization in governance, procurement, product, and HR. Okay. And it's been a game changer. Well, we do know in the insurance world that we just love standards. I don't even think the insurance industry would be around if we didn't have standardization and policies and such. So what's really cool when you, and I do want to talk more generally about DEIB. Uh, the B was, that's a new word to me, belonging, but you can unpack it for us. But it's, you know, there was an event a couple of years ago that was a year and a half ago that was shocking to the world. There was a lot of chatter 
a lot of good people trying to do good things. There was a lot of what I learned, another phrase, courageous conversation around yeah. diversity and organizations. And for frankly, for the insurance industry, this is, you know, it's not like we're in the leading edge of all this, but I, it's the change in the last year and a half has been just amazing. And I think people are really trying to do a lot. But, you know, it's one thing to have a conversation about how people are treating each other. And what, I, what I'm learning, in, as I learn about what you're doing, James, it's like there's, and maybe there's others, I just don't know who they are besides yourself. But it's like, this is really cool because you're starting to put some standard language around it, but also the insurance industry has a money-making role to play here. I know that sounds bad money, but it is <laughs> a way to insure because what we really want to talk about too here is the idea that this is a risk you can manage, The say the lack of diversity or poorly implemented diversity and equity, et cetera. But the idea that you can actually track it and manage it as a risk as you would pollution or other kinds of things that an organization faces, that to me is completely different. And it makes it, it just, it kind of is a calming effect in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a lot of the feedback that we've gotten, not only from folks in the industry, but also politicals on both sides of the aisle. You know, I've had, you know, I think surprisingly to some, but not really to me, really great conversations with folks in the insurance commissioner's office in Mississippi, for instance, and in states where folks would think this is not a thing. But I think we have to remember that if you ask anyone enough questions, you'll figure out how diverse they are. So we really sort of move away from the language of diversity. Uh, we just figure diversity as a fact of reality. And I guess to go through the acronym, equity is, I guess, an executive's choice. Inclusion, though, my favorite word is really a work product. It's something you can toil away at. And belonging is hopefully the end result, right? If you have employees, you have participants who have a sense of belonging, they're less likely to let your organization falter from in any capacity. And I think that leaders across the board, regardless of where they sit geospatially or politically, they realize they have diverse individuals in their organization and need to figure out a way to get them to work well together. And the number one type of underrepresented individual in any place is a woman. And they exist everywhere, you know, shockingly enough to folks. And so, yeah, we were talking to some of those insurance commissioners actually in state offices like Mississippi via the women who work in the office. And it doesn't matter what, you know, what sort of aisle you are on politically, you have to engage this issue because you have employees that may not look like the other employees. And so when you move that along, I remember we, when we initially started our firm inclusion corp, we were dealing with trade associations and we happened to deal with a trade association and advertising here in New York. And they were like, so wait, are you telling me you've got insurance to help people get away from, you know, DNI issues? And I was like, it's quite the opposite. And maybe we need to work on the language. And so we did in the early days because it's basically insurance for a lack of inclusivity. Because what we're seeing in the real incentive for the insurance industry to get involved is at the federal, state, and municipal level. And they all have either organizations like the EEOC, that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission which was established at the federal level after the EEO Act of 1972. But then when you get into states, you have departments of civil rights and cities, departments of human rights, and they can all give people who either have suffered from outright discrimination on one hand or retaliation on another hand, which is illegal in the United States after 1972. They all establish these offices to give individuals the right to sue institutions, or corporations, but also other sorts of institutions, nonprofits and governments. And as they have, fast forward nearly 50 years after 1972, and we've seen 
the lawsuits hit critical mass. We've seen them reach above $5 billion a year. So about $5 billion a year of suits or threats, depending on how you measure them, there could be much more. And then there's another five or so billion dollars that are spent by the largest companies, you know, Fortune 2000 on DNI efforts of some sort. And they have been spending a number similar to that over the course of the past 20 years. So that's my whole work life, really the past 20 years, 2000 and now. And that number is what is incentivized insurers to say, we're not just going to keep eating this cost. We have to figure out a way to incentivize you to manage the risk of lack inclusivity going forward. And, uh, and that's really where we are today in 2021. Okay, got it. And we're going to talk more about this. So we're just still going into it. So I want to repeat something you said. Uh, diversity is really just a fact of life. It's just a reality. Yeah. The equity is a choice. What, is, what do you mean by, by a choice? I mean, it has, it's an executive decision, right? If okay. I want to share in equity, whether that be actual equity or you know, pay or, or other benefit incentives, that's a choice. And I think it's usually, again, something that happens after the effort of inclusion. So inclusion is an act. And then okay. is the end result. Got it. Okay. Yeah. The belonging is the end result. What is, I'm sorry for the dumb questions, James, but no. what does belonging really mean? What should it mean? I think belonging is really in corporate knowledge management or business intelligence terms, right? Let's make it a business issue. In the data, belonging is the quantifiable sentiment that you can identify with your employees and executives, right? Do they feel like when you do a survey that they are a well-participated member of the institution? And that really matters to the institution because it can help. And there's lots of correlation data that can that you can run now predictive analytics on to understand if those employees who have a lack of a sense of belonging leave your institution vulnerable, right? Not just vulnerable to high quality work and innovations of sorts, but, you know, before I got into this work more formally with Inclusion Corporation, you know, I used to work a lot outside of politics and cyber risk management and cyber policy. So I worked on, you know, Europe's general data protection regulation back before it was released about 10 years ago. I would say the majority of the EU and America's data rights laws. Uh, as I was a, a founder of, of the Data Union, which used to be a trade association back in the day. And a lack of belonging is really a, our greatest cyber risk. And we know that all businesses are cyber or digital adjacent businesses now. And so when we think about that 90% of cyber risk comes from human error, whether it be you know knowledgeable human error or just unknowledgeable human error, the fact of the matter is a poorly engaged employee body leaves your firm more vulnerable to risks far beyond diversity and inclusion risks. And, you know, that's a problem. Outside of the lawsuits that are above $5 billion in DNI, we've got another larger swath in cyber right now. But I think the biggest number to consider if we're thinking about the scale of the United States alone is we spend about $600 billion a year in corporate turnover. And those are from employees that don't have a sense of belonging, whether that sense of belonging is a number or that sense of belonging is a a myriad of other workplace situations and benefits. And it matters around $600 billion worth of our effort and time. Yeah. So 90 plus percent of the cyber 
like what breaches and such, right, are are caused by uh, yeah. either employees intentionally or they're just not happy, right? Right, and they're not well. They're and they're not engaged, right? Engaged, so, if you yeah. have, for instance, if you think about employee resource group that interact in cultural silos, you may have a women's group, a Latinx group, a Black people's group, a differently able group, an LGBT group, etc. If you're going into those groups and you're by proxy making all those default leaders of your organization, you're developing them, you're involving them, you're giving them extra incentives to participate, and you're driving home the message of say, hey, we're a digital organization now. And we really need you to pay attention and convince your peers to pay attention to how they leverage our collateral digitally and how vulnerable we are and share, you know, what sort of risk you're taking on, what sort of financial hit you're taking and give those people the responsibility to your mouthpiece outside of the executive suite. I think what you start to do is, is design efforts for indoctrination, which is always good if, if you're building community. And as you build more community, which is a proxy of diversity and inclusion efforts, I think you find that that community is more available to receive messages from you about how they should protect your community. In every office, state by state, city by city, place by place, even if it's in one larger umbrella institution that has many offices, should think about their employee body in that capacity. You know, cyber is just one example, but a lack of belonging when we are companies made up of people bleeds over into every function of your business when you think about the quality of work that you're going to distribute. I worked at Hewlett Packard in the late 2000s and I didn't have a sense of belonging. I was the worst sort of employee you could hire. And I was always basically there looking for an opportunity to leapfrog my boss and jump to another company. And so, you know, I was probably the worst kind of employee to have around <laughs> all your hardware. I left that company with three hard drives with the data for another mm -hmm. with more dough. That's a real life situation. Um, that probably could have been solved via better engagement and maybe a few dollars, but right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> at that time. But anyway, you, you know how it goes. Right. So our premise for this discussion and uh, beyond describing some of the terminology and also for your company is that a lack of inclusion is a growing financial risk and it's quantifiable, a quantifiable risk, which is what risk managers like and people who write insurance policies like. How do you quantify it? And, and feel free to talk about your company in this context too. Sure. So, I mean, there are a few old efforts that were out there. We used to call it or still call it reputational risk. And that's bigger than DNI. You know, you can look at firms and their brand. I think it's, it's necessary to say that we published some data on this, that the S&P 500 companies and really their largest suppliers claim that 90% of their balance sheets are intangible assets. Now that's just code for people, right? And as they do that, difficult for insurers is to bless it if those people are also suing firms. And so while there are lagging indicators like brand value and loss of market value per certain inc incidents and certain brand value loss based on things happening in the media, uh, what we provide is a leading indicator which is essentially a self and or guided assessment uh, based on the ISO standard inside of companies where we can see or whether the insurer can see a company's intention to become more inclusive over time to reduce at least one part of their lagging indicators around reputational risk. And so when you combine those numbers, so the leading indicator, which is a self-assessment, and lagging indicator based on sort of what the market says, whether it's the financial markets or if you're a private company, your filings combined with 
what you look like in the media. When you combine those, you can come back to a number that is basically a commitment to your stakeholders, including your insurer, about where how mature you plan to be in distributing inclusivity over time. And it's a benchmark for the amount of risk that you think you can manage and or have to transfer. And so we we quantify it that way. We start with a self-assessment. And from the self-assessment, we can take those different, what we call risk domains of the ISO standard and compare them with public and private data about risks in the market. For instance, if we look at the advertising industry and we look at the big four, which are WPP, Omnicom, IPG, and Publicis. I'm just sitting here in New York today and looking down Madison Ave so I can see at least one of those. <laughs> I see the names, yeah. Yeah. So when you think about those four firms, if you got some risky folks in those companies, but they're all sort of incestuous and trading back and forth, the same employees. And, you know, Omnicom goes down with certain sorts of lawsuits that we can see via public information or Freedom of Information Act requests or EEO data that's coming out of the federal government. We can make assumptions based on HR data that we have across all four corporations, and they own the majority of the smaller agencies around the globe. We can make assumptions about how risky it is to be any one of those companies because they've been trading back and forth the same employees and they probably adopt the same workplace culture. So that said, in this era of big data and predictive analytics, if we compare that to your self-assessment per the ISO standard, and let's say your company make early adopter commitment to build out more bureaucratic infrastructure with regards to inclusivity, as your premium comes down or your risk comes down, you basically set up your peers or your competitors, depending on how you look at them, to, to have to catch up. You make it more expensive for them to exist as they do. And so that's really how we go about our business, but it is all rooted in, in the incentive to create more inclusivity because it's just cheaper. Mm -hmm. It's just cheaper, not only from a lawsuit standpoint, but when you think about the amount of work, I don't know if a lot of folks know what HR professionals actually do outside of the hiring process. When there is a grievance at the company, they are the note takers and they spend a lot of time chasing down every single thing that happens. And they usually don't have any allies to create a bit of cultural buoyancy when things happen uh, with an employee who fits in it, any sort of minority group you can imagine. And that's usually due to a lack of internal infrastructure, it's due to a lack of employee resource groups, it's due to a lack of engagement of those employee resource groups to sort of diffuse uh, certain situations, but also help gather data on those situations. So outside of what we're spending after we've let an incident get out of hand, you know, and I think it's important to say that to this point in time, diversity and inclusion has really been, if we can even call it an industry, an industry of reacting to crises. And so we got to get way ahead of that. We got to get better than saying, there's a crisis that happened. Let me know what the damages are and we'll just pay it or rather our insurer will pay it. And so that's really how we do what we do. I, I may have run on there a bit, but it starts with a self-assessment. And then from those okay. analytics, um, we're able to understand where investment should be made. Okay. Got it. Okay. I want to ask you about what that, that investment yeah. could look like, but you know, it, in talking about HR, I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting how historically they've sort of been the ones that quote, 
own the culture or and part of the culture discussion besides where we're going to have the uh the, the Christmas party or the the picnic this summer or whatever. It's been like DEI stuff. It was just stuff it into culture, you know, and I, I'm a branding guy. So I, this is in the same way that brand should not be owned solely by marketing. You know, it's right. it just, it's gotta be part of the organization for it to be successful. And are you seeing that concept of, you know, it, we can't, it, HR has, has always been just dumped on. They've been the ones that, that tell yeah. you what to wear, what, what are your hours, when to come in, when to leave. Here's your yeah. 401k. Here's your packet when you sign up. They're the ones who, who ask you the, the sometimes strange questions as you're trying to join the company. You know, but is the measurement, because you mentioned, you know, the, the action diversity is, is the action piece, right? It, and it has to be more embedded around the organization is sort of be an HR project. Do I have that right? Yeah, no, totally. I think, yeah, we we have dumped historically too much on HR departments, just like in the public conversation, we've dumped too much on police departments, right? I mean, we asked them to do so much with mentally ill people and marital disputes and you name it. And they're not necessarily equipped for that. They're equipped for a certain sort of task that is necessary, especially when, when violence is there. And same with, you know, HR, they're equipped for a certain sort of task. They are there to manage who's in the organization, how are they interacting, distributing those packages. And sure, I think they should be available to chase down some of the grievances that happen. But culture change, I think, should start, you know, at the executive and down to the director level. So it should not just be something that the director of HR is owning, but also the director of procurement and the director of product are owning and they receive that from the highest executive, the CEO and the rest of the folks in the C-suite. And I think that the cool thing about this ISO standard is in the way that we use it in our product, which is called Inclusion Score. Inclusion Score uses something called a maturity model integration. We call it an inclusion maturity model integration. And it's really an old methodology, about a 40-year-old methodology that we use frequently in IT and project management and other spaces where we're looking at policy sophistication. We're looking for intentionality and assigning of responsibility of that intentionality department by department. And in this case, that's specific to DNI. And as we look for that intentionality and maturity in that intentionality via some control document, right, to make it a change management process, I think there becomes this shared responsibility with HR. So yes, HR is the doorway to the corporation. But once you get in that door, you have a family of participants and they exist from all over the organization, including product and procurement, not just human resources. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's the work. It's changing even that culture, business people understanding who's responsible for what. Right. So, okay. So the the folks who are listening to this are from really all walks of life in the insurance industry, uh, small retail insurance agencies that might just be operating in a small town all the way up to the, the big multinational insurance carriers. And and so there's a lot of folks who are wondering, you know, the new stand, there's so many angles here that it's the employment brand of insurance because millions of people work in the insurance industry. So you have that risk as organizations themselves, but then they're also, what's the angle for us as insurance providers to to step into this fray with the new standards out there and try to be helpful. You know, obviously it's a, like I said, a money-making operation, but it's also got some more structure to it now based on what you're describing here. So if from the first piece of this, the agents and the brokers and the carriers, et cetera, who are the employers, what is this just for 
the larger companies to score? Another dumb question. No, no, I know. Again, no, not a dumb question, but no, not at all. I think, you know, the smaller your company is, I think you're going to use portions of the assessment to manage your maturity in different ways. You know, if you're a small company, for instance, you don't buy from suppliers, then you don't have that procurement portion, but you do have some employees, you do have executive structure, you do have across these 32 risk domains, there may be four or five that you're not engaging, but the other portions you still would engage as you plan to have some sort of intentionality about how you endeavor to make folks feel a sense of belonging. Again, back to the point. So that's where I think, and I know that a lot of agencies out there, you know, between three and seven people, but I think the the other opportunity here, the money-making opportunity outside of what our company is doing, we'd love to work with everyone, is the ability to go in and assess your clients, whatever size they are. And I'm assuming these small brokerages that have three to seven people in them, their clients have more than that. They have 20 to 100 people, or they have even more employees than that. And what we've seen happen in real time is the old paradigm of DNI consultant to HR director has gone out the window. Now it's broker to CFO saying, hey, if you can't show me some level of maturity across these 32 risk domains, uh, it's likely that your premium might go up over whatever the next interval is, the next year, you name it, right? When we renew. And, you know, the best add-on to that is we actually, we have a team member that can come in and give you a guided assessment that can make sure that you're square, right? And that is, that's a billable hour revenue generating opportunity for those brokerages. When we first started, when we launched Inclusion Score as an application, we actually launched it into small independent consultants first to work out some bugs with them. And I mean, we had consultants in Australia and Sweden and South Africa and Boston and Dallas and Tennessee and Chicago taking this in the hospitals and, you know, mid-sized architecture firms and manufacturers and collision companies and home builder companies. I mean, the type of companies really cover the map. And what they've done is they've held their hand through the guided assessment. And after they're done with the guided assessment, what our application does is it makes recommendations on what you should do next based on your company type, your company size, and what other folks in your industry are doing per the data. So you can really map out a year's worth of DNI effort. And you can you can get a few wins out of that if you're a CEO of a mid-size, you know, 100 person firm, 50 person firm. You can say, look, I know we've we haven't been the best, but here is our plan going forward. And we want you involved. Again, that's another way to engage, make people have a sense of belonging before that broker consultant advisor arm, they're going to make whatever their billable rate is from holding your hand and doing that. And then after the fact, they're going to sell you some premium and it might be a deal. It might be low, right? It might be like low car insurance because you're a good driver or it might be pretty high because you're not and you're 17 and there are no 17 year olds who are good drivers. Um, <laughs> you can always grow towards 25, right? So, so you got to give yourself a few years. This isn't the thing where you go, I got this new solution. I'm one and done. I'm going to be hot by the time I'm 18. It's like, nope, we're going to charge you extra to rent cars until you're 25. And you're probably not going to get good at this until you're 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, the comedian Dave Barry said once, everybody thinks they're a good driver. Oh, they do. But uh, <laughs> it's just different versions of lousy if you're 17. <laughs> but 
Uh, <laughs> I, I had so many questions for you, but I, I think we're starting to run out of time. It is what would be a good place for our listeners? What, what do you think they should be doing next? What would be something if they, if they haven't really given this much thought, or even if they have, and they want to learn more about your company, what, what could they do next? And how, how do folks find you if you'd like them to? I mean, to find, I'm just, I'm Googleable. If, if folks just Google James and Felton and Keith, I've, I've got too many first names. You know, if you see me on the street and yell that out, I'll probably turn around. If you yell <laughs> out Brandon, I'll also probably turn around. Uh, but so I'm there, but the company just Inclusion Corporation or inclusioncorp.com. Everything is there. I would say if you're in the industry, you know, if you're a broker, if you work at a carrier, if you do a variety of different things and you really want to get a grasp of what we're doing, we are the only certifying body in this standard right now. And we just launched and co-branded our certification with the number one risk management B school in the States. And that's the Terry College at University of Georgia. We've got sort of those classes. I know that a few executives at Willis have come out to say that any companies that they meet who have a certified individual at their firm, they'll give them a discount. But I'll say aside from this, there are multiple carriers working on DNI related policies. And mm-hmm. uh, you can see some of that on our website. If you just click the insurance button, you can learn about some of the stuff we've been doing industry. But for folks trying to wrap their heads around what that might be, I want you to think about DNO, think about ENO or TENO even, and think about EPLI policies. There will be usually if a employee, and this just happened, I got a, a cousin, she's you know mid-40s, black woman runs a hospital out in LA County, out in California. She, you know, bumped heads with some of the other folks at the firm and is leaving the firm. They offered her six weeks of severance. She left under counsel, as I would advise everyone in America to do. And they ended up offering her 10 times that plus all of her healthcare. That's a DNO policy for anyone that's not familiar. We track an index that's called non-litigation monetary benefits resulting from EEO claims. And as long as a, a mouthful, but that index is about $300 million a year of basically suits that never went to court, but they were threat. And it's basically the difference between someone walking away with six weeks of severance or walking away with six months or 12 months. And that's usually an EPLI, a DNO or ENO policy. And so for folks in the industry, you should be thinking about the new policies that come that rain down and what your firm can do to either sell those if you're on the broker side or that you can do to advise clients and really build a new book of business to sell products to eventually on the heels of selling a whole bunch of consultants because there are legions of consultants who do what we call DNI service management or DISM for short that want to come and partner with you and do a guided assessment with every firm under the sun. And I would say here in the United States alone, there are 5.2 million companies that pay taxes. I would argue that 4 million of them are ideal for this sort of work. So that's the market that we have to sew up. Okay. And I also could refer our listeners to an excellent explanatory podcast on the new ISO standard on diversity and inclusion. It's on, I saw it off your, um, probably the easiest way I found it was on your, off your LinkedIn page. James, and uh, there's a link there and it's Zurich hosted it. It's excellent for those who want to know what those standards are. And um, 
James, I mean, I, I'm kind of glad you didn't get elected to the U.S. House because <laughs> this allowed you more free time to do this good work you're doing. I love the cause. I love your insurance expertise and uh, trying to help people. I mean, there's, there's probably no better job on earth to help others and doing it. And uh, it's just awesome. I'm glad we had a chance to chat. Thanks so much. And I really appreciate it. And you, yeah, anyway, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Cause if you go through a little depression after an election uh, is over and you're not the guy. Yeah, I can imagine. But, but no, you're right. I think it still feels like we're doing the good work. And again, there's so much upside just because this is a newly financialized market. If you think about what cyber was 10 years ago, you know, and all those prices raced to the bottom. And now we're finally getting our arms around what risk really is in the cyberspace. I imagine we'll see that over the course of this decade for DNI, but there's a long way to go. And mm-hmm. hopefully uh, we're we're here to help facilitate that, not only here, but across the globe. So now thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, James.